Hello and welcome to Playback Daily, the Friday edition. It's the 29th of September. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. It's not the first time I've been compared to Bano, I'm not going to lie. I am the voice of a generation, thank God somebody said it. Um, yeah, no, do you know, you would be a bit nervous because it's my first gig back as well since having the baby. Yes, congratulations. Uh, in fact, the tarantula can make a rather odd pet, but a pet that's actually completely manageable in a house if you're able to care for it properly. We had just had our seventh child. Um, and we were kind of sitting in the garden. Our garden was actually so small, we had fake grass and we didn't get enough sunlight to even grow grass. <laughs> well, in case you needed any motivation to get some exercise in this weekend, Ray Darcy had a guest who has run multiple ultra marathons and she even has the nickname Hilly Goat. Now, our next guest is going to run uh, 48 kilometres, well, exactly 47.8 kilometres tomorrow in the Wicklow Mountains. Uh, but six years ago, uh, in Norway, she broke 12 bones. Um, as a result, she had to have 100 stitches and five operations in two weeks. And she was told she will never, that she'd never run again. And here she is running 48 kilometres tomorrow. Uh, Hilary Allen, good afternoon. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Um, you're called Hilly Goat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's a good nickname, huh? It, it, yeah, because it, <laughs> you, you, you run up and down mountains. Yep. <laughs> that, that's the thing. What do they call it? Sky running? Sky running, yeah. That's yeah. how I started How I started trail running, actually, is this, the steepest type of terrain out there. Right. Just run straight up, no switchbacks, go straight down the most direct way up a hill. Yeah, it's pretty that, great. That's you. That's <laughs> yeah. you, yeah. Uh, I'm always intrigued as to how people are introduced to this. You know, like, because it's not something you do as a child. I want to run up hills when I'm older. It's not something you say, really, is it? It's not aspirational, usually. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in a really outdoorsy family. Do you know the Grand Canyon in the United States? Yes, I've heard of it. It's this huge chasm, this big Grand Canyon. And I remember walking down it. I was very, like, seven years old, maybe. And we walked down a mile or two. Um, And I was, you know, very slow because I was young. But then, actually, I, hiking back out, I just left my parents behind. Uh-huh. I think I had like a knack for doing maybe hard things or uphill running in, in particular. Right. And right. I come from I come from a family of runners, so it was only a matter of time I think before I discovered yeah. discovered trail running. Uh, and Wicklow tourism now are, are promoting Wicklow as a place to run. Is there is there good sky running in Wicklow? Well, maybe not sky running, right. but there's really good trail running. Uh-huh. Right. You have a sky run here, I think, in Donegal. Um, You've done it. I have not done the sky no, race, not, right. but I've ridden my bike through Donegal and it is very hilly. Yes. Um, but yeah, the trail running in Wicklow is amazing. You have uh, the Wicklow Round, uh, just amazing trails. And I mean, you don't have big mountains like, you know, the Alps or even in, from, you know, I'm from Colorado. So you don't have big, tall mountains, but you have plenty of hills. Perfectly proportioned. Oh, yes. Perfectly proportioned. <laughs> we'll see how I feel about them yesterday. I think they're going to feel pretty steep. Yeah. So you're starting in Bray and then you're going out to Little Sugarloaf and then the Great Sugarloaf and then on beyond there. And then mm-hmm. you loop back yep. and you end up in Bray as well. Mm-hmm. Bray's lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just getting ready for it. What did you do this morning now, for example? <laughs> well, this morning I went for a bike ride because uh, I also love to cycle. But I right. went for a bike ride, Bray. I went over to Loch Bray and then Loch Tay. I had to see the Guinness Lake and right. then did a big loop and came back home. Right. No running today. Day <laughs> Uh, no, I did I did a run and a ride yesterday. I'll yeah. save the running for tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, people want to know about this this mad uh, accident, 12 yeah. broken bones, 100 stitches, five operations, and you were told that you'd never run again. And you yourself, mid-fall, thought that this is it. You said mm-hmm. it to yourself out loud, this is it. Yeah. So you were in Norway mm-hmm. doing one of these things. What happened? Yeah, well, Norway... 
it's notorious for being wet like Ireland. And um, I was on, you know, this ridgeline basically halfway through this sky race. And it felt like it was nothing. It was it was not like anything I'd ever experienced before. It felt like one moment I was running and the next the rug was, you know, like just taken out from underneath me. And I think what happened is I stepped on a rock and it just gave way underneath my foot. And I ended up just tumbling 50 meters off the side of a cliff. It was a part where it was kind of a no-fall zone. It's a very – it's a ridgeline. It's a very technical part, and I think I didn't have enough time to to catch myself before I fell. And, I mean, it was very serious. I was lucky that there was – it was during a race, and so people saw it happen. And the runner behind me actually was trained in mountain rescue, and he was able to scramble down to me to – to find me and to prevent me from falling further. And then they initiated a whole, um, you know, rescue operation from there. So, but I remember it vividly. It's still a dream that I have. I mean, it's quite, you fall in trail running, but you know, Never like that, but... Um, so were you airborne, do you reckon? I was. Oh, yeah, well, you know, what, so, what do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first thing I did is, I mean, literally what, what allowed me to say, like, talking to myself that this is it, like, you're going you're gonna to die, is because I turned upside down. And so I saw the horizon kind of floating and, you know, turning upside down in slow motion, and then that was kind of on repeat every time I hit the ground, and then I was airborne again, and then I hit the ground and kind of continued until at some point I passed out yeah yeah like it, it, it's sort of like it was like a mountain like he draws a child mm-hmm. you know like a, a peak a perfect triangle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you fell off the top the, yeah. the tip top oh yes the, I know yeah. and there's there's pictures of it it's in you know Tromso Norway and it's this iconic humper rock and ridge this rocky ridge leading up to the peak and then there's like a nice snow field below it and I fell to the snow field right yeah. So there was a soft enough landing then. Ish. Uh, ish. I mean, I think I had rolled to a stop at that point, but hit plenty of rocks yeah. along the way. Yeah. So the, do you like recounting the bones that you broke? <laughs> Is that something you do as a party piece? Oh, uh, as a party piece. I mean, maybe scars. I definitely have some pretty good scars. Right, it right. looks like a, a bear, you know, scratched my quad. I still have some pretty good. Right, right. Some pretty good ones. But and you broke both arms. Both arms. Yeah. Anything in the legs? Um, I didn't break my legs. I broke both feet. So right. some multiple bones in my feet. I broke five ribs. I broke my back and like two bones in my back. Um, yeah, I mean, I was lucky I didn't. I was lucky I didn't break yeah. my break my legs. But I do a little, tiny little bit of running, right? <laughs> and it's it's a huge part of my life. And I know how I feel when I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were a professional runner, so it was a, it was probably a good chunk of your identity. Mm. So psychologically, then, how do you deal with that? Thinking that maybe you may not be able to do it again. I think that was the hardest part. I mean, everyone talks about the survival of, you know, from the accident itself. And that was, I was very lucky. But for me, day one of survival was when I got off my casts and I was, you know, okay. And I didn't know really what the next steps were. I missed running. It was it was a part of me. It was how I defined my strength and how I defined myself in some way. And of course, it was my job at that point. So it was very I was in a hard position, but I really, truly missed it. And I didn't know how to get that back. And so I don't know, it was, it was kind of, it was a test in, in perseverance and resilience and figuring out what I wanted to do. And I was given the choice if I wanted to actually figure out if I could do it again or not. When you say you were given the choice, who you in your head? Me, you in my gave, head. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So because I mean, it's something. It's something that I love, and I think I had to let go of it being this thing of being a you know professional athlete and having it be associated with ego or you know 
reaching a certain level or, you know, that competitive part of me that wants to, you know, be ranked number one in the world or win these races. I had to let go of that and do it just because I loved it and because it gave something back to me, Mm. not necessarily from a competitive side. And honestly, that was a gift. But that was that was a long process. That took a very long time. I read somewhere you, 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 were, st- you were talking about strength, um, mm. and, and that it was in quiet moments that that's where you needed most strength. Mm. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So I think, and this is something I learned throughout the whole recovery process, is that before, before the accident, before I fell, I thought that strength was just these external things, how fast I could run a mile, how fast I could run this race, you know, how big my muscles were, you know, things like that. Um, It was this very outwardly measurable thing that you kind of show off. Like I was strong and if it was rainy or windy, I could just go out and just grit it through. But what I learned is that there's strength in asking for help and there's strength in being vulnerable and there's strength in doing things that no one else knows that that no one else can see, but you, you're you're in the thick of it doing it. For instance, you know, going going to the gym. It's not glamorous. It's not this picturesque view on a mountaintop, but it's doing these, you know, the PT exercises that I needed to do and being completely bored and you know just not motivated to do them at all, but having the strength to do to it. To do them, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that motivation just comes from. I think inside yourself. Okay, now you're you're a neuroscientist. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm sure people have asked this question before, but it, it is this thing because people who run, you do ultra marathons. Mm-hmm. You do. You've done a, a, a 22 hour. How long was that? Which one? I mean, I've done some hundred mile races. Hundred mile so, races. Hundred yeah, mile 20, races. 24, 25 hours yeah, yeah, of running. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. so do you have any understanding of the why of it? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think uh, honestly. I don't know. Sometimes I think I don't understand the why, but I think really what I, what it comes down to is I really enjoy doing hard things. Right. And there's a big sense of accomplishment for doing something that you don't think you can do. Asking yourself the question is, I don't know if I could do this and I'm still going to try. I think that's another that's another form of strength and courage is trying something that you honestly don't know if you can do. And I think yeah, I don't know. I think uh, if more people did that, they can find out so much more about themselves. It doesn't have to be, you know, a hundred mile race. It can be a shorter distance race. I mean, mm. for instance, I'm running the 48k tomorrow um, at the Eco Trail Wicklow, and I, I'm coming back from another surgery and an injury. Right now, I'm like healing a broken toe, so it scares me a little bit to do this distance because I haven't run this far in a while. But it's also kind of exciting to find out your limits. I think I'll stick to the park run. That was Hilary Allen on The Ray Darcy Show earlier. Well, more and more people are considering exotic pets, apparently. So Claire Byrne spoke to Dr. Michelle Dugan, zoology specialist at the Venom Lab in NUI Galway, and Dr. Barbara O'Malley from Village Vets in Bray. And she's an associate lecturer in exotic species at the Veterinary College UCD about what to consider before getting an exotic pet. Now, the last time um, you were on the programme, Michelle, we were talking about what animals you have and you were telling us about your tarantula. Now, you thought nothing of it. I I was uh, quite taken aback. Can you explain to us why you have uh, a tarantula as a pet? Hello. Uh, Yes, of course. Uh, Well, 
I had a fascination so for uh, all sorts of strange creatures, and I've made a career of it as, as a university lecturer, so in zoology, specialist of venomous animals. And uh, in fact, a tarantula can make a rather odd pet, but a pet that's actually completely manageable in a house if you're able to care for it properly. And it's, it's a fascinating animal with, with a very interesting behavior, very interesting habits, and, uh, and a very interesting way to live. But this is not like having a Labrador. Like, you don't have a tarantula for companionship, do you? No, it's not a question of companionship. You're not going to cuddle your tarantula in the evening while watching television. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. You might. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a bad idea. You might do that once or twice, but you're going to regret it at the end. Um, but a pet is not just an animal that you cuddle. It can also be an animal that you try to learn from in terms of zoology and habits and behavior, an animal that you want to study as well. And in the case of a tarantula, it's a little bit more that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the bright side of it, though, a tarantula eats only once a week or once every two weeks. It doesn't lose hair. It doesn't smell bad. And you don't have to walk it every day. So... <laughs> It's not that bad. It does bite though, doesn't it? I mean, it's not deadly and I know a lot of people think they are, but but they can bite. So indeed they can bite, uh, but nobody ever died from the bite of a tarantula. And on the other side, when you think about it, uh, I take a lot more risk than petting a chihuahua and risking a bite there than uh, actually having a tarantula in a terrarium at home. Uh, Any dog can bite. Any dog can bite, you're right. Um, What else do you have in terms of exotic animals? Oh, well, um, I actually, at the university, I I care for about 150 animals with my students. Uh, Even I'm in my office right now, I can tell you that I'm surrounded by seven lizards, uh, two python and another snake. Um, And uh, they're all absolutely fine. And a tortoise as well. That's Mm -hmm. free roaming in my office, wherever it wants. And tell me about the the lizards, um, because I know you have one particular one who's a bit of a star at NUI Galway, is that right? Absolutely. We have Kenge. Kenge is actually a tegu lizard. She's a girl. She's about four years old and she's about four foot long. Uh, and uh, she's a very clever lizard. Uh, normally, reptiles are not particularly known for their interaction with their owners. But, uh, but tegu lizards actually are. So my students on a sunny day would actually walk uh, so Kenge uh, on the campus. She actually walks on a harness and a leash without any problem. She grew up at home during COVID with my family. She was uh, partly free-ranging in and around the house. She knew her way in and out of the house. And uh, she's she's actually quite cuddly, I have to say. She recognizes me. She climbs on my shoulder when she feels like being with me. So a lovely, lovely pet. All right. Actually, it does sound nice and you you sell it very well. Uh, Barbara, listening to all of that here, you would see about 130 different species of animal every year. Is that right? Is that yeah, well, not every year, about? but I just, you know, on a head count, what I've done over the years would be a lot of species because most pet vets deal commonly with cats and dogs. But because I do with exotic species as well, I do up to 140 different types of species from parrots to lizards, lots of tegus. I love tegus. They're lovely. Um, they're fabulous lizards. Uh, parrots, birds of prey, backyard hens, rodents, um, 
all kinds of snakes, turtles, lizards, then lots of wildlife, wild hedgehogs and, you know, wild kestrels and hedge, you know, um, anything that comes in out of the wild comes to me eventually and as you, well. You, you yeah. treat them. So c- c- do you know what it is that attracts people to exotic pets? Well, there's, it, I mean, as as Michelle says there, there's one fas- one thing is the fascination. They're so different in their physiology and their structure and their anatomy. I think so different about them, which I find so fascinating. Um, you know, how they breathe, how they, you know, different um, even perception of the world and stuff. But the other reason why people, so people have this fascination with their you know, zoology as such. But the other reason as well is that, you know, People have busy lives these days. They often can't have a dog because they're at work all day. So for families especially, there might be children with allergies. So you can't have a cat or a dog or a furry animal. So a reptile is a perfect pet for a family that are fascinated with animals. Um, or you could uh, just want an animal that is there, you know, looking, waking up in the evening time when they're coming home from work. Mm-hmm. So lots of people who are working at home have pet ferrets or, you know, small furry animals like African pygmy hedgehogs or pet rats. So they can play with when they come home in the evening. They aren't demanding walks every day. Come home from work and play with a rat is a a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I have to say, pet rats are wonderful pets. They're mothers of pet, mothers hate pet rats because they always associate with vermin, you know, the, mm. the, the, the dirt and, you know, it, they're things a dirty animal. But they're some of the cleanest animals around because pet rats come from the laboratory industry. So they're very infection free. You know, they're very, very clean, clean animals. Back in the 70s and 80s, budgies were considered uh, exotic, weren't they? And they were very common and very popular. Are there many of them around? Do people still keep them? Yeah, I would see a lot of parrots. See, budgies actually, budgies often got a very unfair reputation because people think of them being little old ladies' pets and boring little things. But they're actually small parrots. They're highly clever animals. So they make a very good pet, especially for young families. They're great fun to have. And again, they're not demanding to be walked every day. Now, I do always say when you get a pet bird that you should have fly it. It needs to have some flying space. How do uh, you do that, though, without it escaping? Yes, you have to really, when you get a pet parrot, whether it's an African grey or a macaw or a cockatoo or a budgie, you have to have an area where they can fly, ideally an outdoor aviary, but just a flying room, which is pet proofed. Mm-hmm. Just like you would pet proof your ha- house against a puppy. So you'd have to have an area where they can fly freely every day and not pick up things and eat things around the house that might be, um, you know, swallowed by them. Because parrots love shiny stuff. They're attractively shiny things. So we would get a lot of African greys and pet birds coming in eating, you know, those tiny little batteries that we have now, those lithium cir- batteries. Circular ones. Yeah, they, they often eat those. We've had a few of those. Or the magnetic um, thing on your um, phone wallet or anything that's kind of sh- um, containing lead or zinc can be highly toxic. They go toxic for it and it's parrots. toxic. Yeah. So you have to get them out when that happens. You have, we have to make sure that they've no access to shiny things around the house. Okay. Be very careful. Um, you mentioned that the budgie is part of the parrot family. What about the speaking birds? Well, they all speak. I mean, budgies have been known to learn up to 100 words. So even budgies can be quite clever. Um, the most famous one as a pet was the African grey. 
they're not quite so glamorous looking. They're, they're grey with red tail feathers, but they're wonderful speakers. And they, it's been proven scientifically that they have the IQ of a five-year-old child. Mm-hmm. So they're very clever animals. Uh, longevity as well. If people are thinking about getting an exotic bird, they need to know that bird is going to be with them for a very long time. Yes. I mean, budgies eight to 12 years, but the bigger parrots like macaws and amazons up to 50, 60 years would be common. So you have to do some future planning when you're getting these birds and leaving your will to somebody else as well um, because they are very very long lived. And do they stay in good health if they have a very long life like that? Well the problem is most pet birds don't get taken to a vet annually um, because they don't get vaccination like cats and dogs so we do recommend if you have a pet bird they do get an annual physical every year because a lot of people out there their birds are not going to live as long as 40-50 years because they're all on the wrong diets They're they're given very fattening foods like seeds and nuts but in the wild, these birds are flying, they're foraging, they're eating flowers, eating berries, they're eating, you know, leaves off trees. They're eating, a, they're not just stuffed with seeds and nuts all day in their cage. So you have to, you have to adjust the diet and not just give them what you might think is the right food. Yeah, I mean, we would see a lot of pet parrots with uh, obesity and heart disease for that very reason. And they won't live as long. They're going to have a shortened lifespan, unfortunately, you know. Um, Michelle, you mentioned that you have a snake there in front of you, do you? Yes, absolutely, yeah. There's three of them in front of me. Okay, take us through who you have. (laughs) (laughs) So I have actually uh, two carpet pythons uh, on one side and I have an African egg-eating snake on the other side. And are Um, they fairly popular, do you know, in Ireland when it comes to people acquiring them as pets? Yes, definitely. Over the past uh, 10, 15 years, uh, they've hugely gained in popularity, uh, particularly a couple of species uh, that, are, that are fairly small and completely harmless, like corn snakes or bull pythons. Uh, those are snakes that are fairly easy to take care of. Uh, but on the other side, of course, they are not, they are not toys. And uh, one of the issues that we encounter sometimes is that people actually buy them just um, as a fancy. And then they realize that actually these animals are going to be with them for the coming 15, 20, 25 years. Yes. And sometimes they abandon them. And uh, that is a problem that you can find with all pets, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And what kind of an enclosure do you need to keep a snake in? Because we heard about the importance of exercise there from uh, Barbara with the other species. Do the Does the snake need to, to move? So a snake, of course, needs to move. However, their very way of functioning, their physiology means that they would move often far less than a warm-blooded animal like a cat or a dog or a human being. They tend to be, for many species, ambush predators. So that means that even in the wild, they would actually sit and wait, sometimes for several weeks or months, for a prey to pass by. And then they will eat it. And then that prey will be sufficient for several weeks again. Mm -hmm. So they use very little energy. They function on an energy conservation kind of of, um, of methods, and as such, they don't need huge spaces. However, we consider that the, the vivarium should be ideally at least the length of the snake. Okay. So if you have a snake that's four foot long, you should be able to provide a at least four foot long vivarium. And dare I ask what you feed them? Oh, well, I feed them, depending on the size, uh, we feed them anything from... Uh, uh, 
mice to actually uh, big rabbits, uh, all dead, of course, uh, all purchased uh, directly from suppliers because it is actually considered unethical to feed uh, live animals to a snake. It would be, it would put the animal under extreme stress. And can you buy dead mice and dead rabbits somewhere? Do I want to know the answer to that question? Oh, you can go to most of your pet stores and uh, they will have actually a freezer. And in that freezer, you're going to find frozen uh, mice, rats and rabbits for all our reptiles, animals. And you have to defrost them before you feed them to the snake? Of course, we defrost them. We actually bring them to kind of body temperature, so about 30 degrees or so, because some snakes are sensitive to the heat signature of animals and uh, then the snake will just strike and uh, coils around it if it's a python or a boa and then swallow it all. See Barbara I love animals but I, I just can't I can't I couldn't do that I couldn't go there. No not everybody can I mean it also likewise if you get a lizard you have to have buy insects every week to feed them insects as well you know mm. I mean you can get dried insects but they're not as, as not as, as tasty not as tasty <laughs> and not as nutritious uh, for the animal um, yeah no it is different but then again if you are if you are I suppose um, getting a cat or dog you're feeding it pedigree you know some kind of meat in a tin it just isn't so obvious to you as well yeah. so I suppose and, and just because this thing tends to go in crazes, doesn't it? Like, what is the thing at the moment that you see people acquiring? Is there a particular unusual animal that people are going for? Yeah, when I mean, all, throughout my career, in, you know, 35 years as a vet, I've seen all the kind of crazes. We had the Ninja Turtles, all the turtles. They were huge in the 90s, uh, you know, all then. Um, the, I, they might come back in fashion a little bit now with this latest uh, movie. Um, so... And then we had the iguana phase and now it's all bearded dragons in the lizard world. Um, the current phase in the mammal world the last 10 years probably was African pygmy hedgehogs. These are a tiny little hedgehog. They're tropical. They're from Africa. They're kind of um, white with kind of brown um, prickles. They're, they're a charming little animal. They're more a pet design for adults so because they're nocturnal, obviously. So they are good if you're, you know, if you're young and working and you're coming home in the evening and want some company in your apartment because they're waking up when you're coming home. Um, and they have to be kept in a, in a, a bit like the snakes. They have to be kept in a warm in a warm enclosure with the kind of heating because they are African. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are charming little animals. And um, um, the only downside to them is around the age of three or four, they're quite prone to getting a lot of cancers and things. So okay. they do need so a lot of medical lived. care. Well, no, they can live to four or six. They can live longer, but they do need to have a lot of veterinary care as they get older. Well, it's been very interesting talking to you both. Thank you very much, Dr. Michelle Dugan from the University of Galway and Dr. Barbara O'Malley, Village Vets in Bray and also Associate Lecturer in Exotic Species at uh, UCD. Those guests were on today with Claire Byrne and I don't know about you, but I think I'm happy enough to stick with the pet goldfish. Have you ever thought about relocating to the countryside? Well, Brendan Courtney's guest, Aoife Kyo, did just that. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, delighted you took the call. Thank you so much. So you moved out of the sticks. So t- take me back. Take me back. Where did you start from? So we were living in Bray in County Wicklow um, in like a townhouse and um, there in the summer of 2020 we had just had our seventh child 
um, and we were kind of sitting in the garden. Our garden was actually so small, we had fake grass and we didn't get enough sunlight to even grow grass. <laughs> um, but it was like a lovely estate. So and just, really just to pause there, you, so. where we're going to end up in this conversation, it's not the irony of you having fake grass is not lost on me anyway. So you had seven, <laughs> seven children. What was that like? Busy, yeah. hectic, crowded? Um, well, it was less hectic now that we have eight. So. <laughs> oh, you're just showing off but now. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, it, it was um, kind of hectic enough, but uh, they're all quite close in age, so they kind of entertain each other a lot of the time. Self-contained, well, so. is that what they say? You've got your own little yeah. mini youth club there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. how old are they? No, from range? What's the range? You've eight children ranging so, from... So from 13 years to three months. Oh, wow. That's busy. So <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> well done. Good for you. The Brady Bunch right there. So set the picture. 2020, seven, now eight. And you're, what were you working at? Uh, well, I was um, just at home with the kids mainly. I used to do a little bit of, um, I used to make children's clothes to kind of sell the markets and stuff but I was mainly kind of, of course you did. with the children. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what <laughs> did your, all my your, spare time. What did your husband work at? Um, so he Pardon. was just in an office job and um, yeah so. So very uh, sort of suburban normal life would yeah, you say? Yeah boring. <laughs> well busy obviously. Busy. Normal. <laughs> yeah. And then a penny dropped. What happened? Uh, well, it's something I kind of would have always have liked to do. Um, and then just, we are kind of just in the garden one day and it just kind of was like, oh God, would you not love a bit more space? Mm-hmm. Um, like that we were trying to sit out, you know, and have a cup of tea or that and the kids are playing around were kind of constantly on top of us and uh, where we lived, the kids... Um, there was a good few kids in the estate so they used to play out but they'd be playing kind of hide and seek amongst cars. <laughs> like, it was a cul-de-sac now so it was very safe but you know there was no like even trees for them to be hiding behind or you know playing around so uh, it was just kind of a need for space and just a bit of freedom for them. So did you harbour a sort of a desire to move to the countryside in yourself? Yeah, I would have now for years um, wanted it. And I even remember when our oldest fellow was about two or three, uh, trying to get him to convince my husband. So my husband would have been much more... Um, <laughs> so you were using the three-year-old. Person. Who hasn't done that? Let's be honest. But you were using the three-year-old. <laughs> Go in there and work on daddy. <laughs> so it only, yeah, it only took me 10 years. But, but, uh, we did. He would be much more practical person and I'm a bit more of a flighty let's just go and do it <laughs> but tell me what, what in your head what was the dream give us the words what the dream was to so yeah just freedom and space um, just you know for the kids just to be able to go off and explore and kind of have adventures and you to, know and to, to live in the countryside is that what the dream was yeah to live in the countryside and to I suppose be a bit self-sufficient as well okay um, and to have animals and all was Always there. So important. Did obviously where where did you where did you consider first the west of Ireland? Did you think the west? Yeah, we were very open in where we were considering. So we we're looking at places like kind of Donegal, Sligo, Mayo, Wicklow, Wexford, um, kind of all over the place. Really, um, we were very open. It was more this space 
and the land we wanted as opposed to a particular county or a particular area. And then we obviously didn't want to be, because we have uh, the children, we didn't want to be too much out in the sticks either that they still have to go to school and, you know, you don't be too far to have to go and buy a pint of milk or whatever. Yeah, so they have to go to school, of course. Yeah, so so you'd no experience of this life. No, none at all. (laughs) Grew up in towns, lived in towns all my life. Had you done any research? Um... Not really. <laughs> yeah. You're busy. You're a busy woman. You're a busy woman. I get it. Yeah, just like once I suppose we got the idea and we were set on it, you know, and kind of put our house on the market and really started kind of looking. Um, then I would uh, like had uh, looking for researching it and what we could do. And I suppose like we are very naive as in, oh, we'll just move up and we'll get animals and we'll start a market garden, we'll grow all our own veg and we'll have all these animals and sure will be grand. <laughs> Can I, so, something I'm curious is, how did you bring your husband around to your idea? Um, I think just like that, I suppose after having so many children that then, um, and living in kind of a smallish house and stuff and with no garden. I think he was looking for something a bit more as well. And we're kind of, um, <clears throat> I was uh, 38 at the time and he was just past 40. So I suppose we're at that kind of point in our life where it was like we still have the energy and the drive to do this, but another 10 or 15 years and we probably won't. So it was a bit of a now or never kind of situation. And our oldest fellow was coming up to teenage years as well. So it'd be much harder then once they start kind of becoming teenagers to try and get them motivated and so, like excited about kind of going on an adventure like this. Absolutely, absolutely. You saw your opportunity and you seized it. Was it yeah, would you so call it, it a leap kind of, of faith? Yeah. Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, because <laughs> we like that. We really didn't know what we were doing um, and so just to give a time scale so this is 2021 you sell the house you give up your job yeah, so, and where did you move so we moved to a place called Rock Harry in County Monaghan okay describe it what's so it like we, <laughs> so it's lovely now we um, so we didn't know anyone in Monaghan um, I think I had only driven through Monaghan on the way to Derry once so we didn't really know anything about the area so we came just up to such, see yeah, I know uh, you're from I know you're from Bray but that's such a Dublin thing to say just, I know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. go on <laughs> that was 500 <laughs> yeah. miles away but, uh, no um, we came up and it's we're bordered by a lake and a river so it was really the kind of setting that uh, we really fell in love with. It was um, kind of around Christmas, New Year time. And it was just, you know, one of those really kind of frosty but really clear days. And the lake just looked like glass. It was gorgeous. And um, then there's a big forest on the other side of the lake. And then we have a rev- river kind of bordering our land. So it was just like a beautiful setting. So that really kind of won us over. So it's what, um, how, how big is what? What's the plot you bought? How big is it? So it's about um, twenty six acres. Wow! Um, but now because we're along the river in the winter, you do lose a fair few acres. Oh, but uh, yeah, so it's quite a big still plot for people who don't know what. But they're it's doing. not kind of like a <laughs> half acre of new garden. You like you literally no, no, going no. from. No, no, no. We were going all in. Yeah. Wow. 
and, 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 and okay so you're talking to me now so it's worked out great but at the time like what did your family say what do people in your life think did they think you were crazy or brave um, both probably a <laughs> bit more crazy but I am um, they kind of after we had our fourth child they all thought we were crazy <laughs> anyway so <laughs> it was like oh that's just Aoife <laughs> okay yeah Aoife so, literally yeah. <laughs> what's the word uh for us, our own, our own, our own way, definitely. So you, you, yeah. This is and this is only that's not long ago. Okay, it's a couple of years ago. Yeah, so we're here. Yeah, about two and a half years now. So we're still very much at the start, I suppose, of the journey as well. So, so did the you? There's a house, obviously, on the twenty six acres. You all moved down, and what was the first couple of months like with eight, eight kids, seven, seven, one on the way, or now eight kids? What was it? What was it like? Um, it was great um, to start with. Um, like the plot we have now was very basic. Um, so, like, but we moved. It was in April, so it was coming into the summer. So uh, it was great at first, like that. That we because um, we had the river and the lake there. The kids were going swimming every day. Wow! And then we kind of started getting a few animals, and then we were trying to do a bit of planting. Um, kind of growing vegetables and everything as well. So we really kind of got stuck in like that first because I suppose it was a really nice summer as well. So we were very lucky. Um, and when we moved now, this last year has been very wet. wet. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been a different story. It was this I, year, I mean, but I'm now s- that year was just so dry and so lovely yeah. that it was just like, yeah, it was an amazing I'm actually, start. I'm to struck it. by you saying that the kids went swimming every day, like. Uh, with all the space do they have has it had an effect on them how they play definitely yeah we um, like they just go off and you know they have various huts and bases um, over the farm and even this year now they made they found an old tyre and made like a tyre swing so it kind of really would take you back um, I need theme you know, music so for you now. Have... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing. But yeah, so yeah. they just kind of go off themselves, you know. Um, amazing. A lot of the time and they all have like little pal or whoever that they kind of generally buddy around with. So, um, Great. So, so they are the, uh, what, so you're the younger very, ones like, now so are turning a little bit feral. <laughs> oh, well, that's going to, that goes with that. And that, well, why not? That sounds wonderful. But uh, so... Y- you started describing then we decided to start planting a bit and getting a few animals and thinking about so your approach to farming was, was it sounds kind of without any cliche kind of organic yeah so we really kind of learned as we went um, how did we, you learn first <laughs> we got a goat that had a teaching had goat the, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but why wouldn't know what to do well, with a goat <laughs> the the people we bought it off had been milking it so we had to then milk it straight away so you just kind of <laughs> do it I, I suppose we watched a few YouTube videos and just kind of learned by trying and doing it you know so so you, you, you literally of, uh, learned, how to, error. <laughs> learned how to milk your goat from YouTube that's amazing <laughs> what's, what's, what's the goat's name not that it's important but I'm animal mad what's the goat's name it was uh, Yalka. Yalka, okay. So Yalka. She, was, she was named before we got her. Okay, very good. So was the goat the first animal you got? So the goat, yeah, was one of the first. And then we got a few chickens as well. So we kind of started off with uh, easier animals. Um, 
So within this short time, then, you're, you're a farmer now, basically. Are you self-sufficient? Um, yeah, I'm not self-sufficient. Um, oh, we're guessing there now. We did... Um, we had the first year we did do some uh, planting, but now the last year just with opening the shop and um, having the baby, we kind of didn't do so much this year. So um, we are hoping now so again next year to kind of really. You're making everybody with. feel bad about themselves after having my eighth baby and opening the shop while running a farm. <laughs> we, were, we were we were a bit busy. I had to admit that I couldn't do it all. <laughs> <laughs> She's some woman, Aoife Kyo, chatting to Brendan Courtney on the nine o'clock show this morning. According to the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities, people will be protected by being cut off by energy suppliers this winter, starting this weekend, but for a shorter period than last winter. And Gavin Jennings had more on this on the News at One. People who register as vulnerable won't be cut off if they can't pay their bills from the start of October until the end of March next year. Everyone else will be protected from being cut off from the start of December until the end of January. Last winter, the protection period ran until the end of March. Karen Trant is the CRU's Director of Customer Policy and Protection. She talked with us earlier. The CRU has today announced that there will be a disconnection moratorium for energy customers. That's both electricity and gas, uh, domestic customers and vulnerable customers over the winter period. So if I just uh, maybe take a moment to explain, registered vulnerable customers will not be disconnected between the period of October, 1st of October uh, this year until the 31st of March next year. And all other customers... Uh, will not be disconnected from the 1st of December until the 31st of January for non-payment of account. So this moratorium is uh, in addition to other customer protections that we put in place last year, uh, given the high prices. And we we believe it gives customers a level of comfort over over that winter period. Just as a reminder, there are people who are categorised as critically dependent they're they're never cut off isn't that right? They are never cut off so you can can register as a vulnerable customer and I would encourage people to contact their supplier to do that it's a very simple process Who is Um, who who are categorised as vulnerable? So anyone that would have um, by age uh, physical or sensory, intellectual or mental health disabilities. Um, and if you're unsure, I would say talk to your supplier. And then there are those that would be on uh, critical medical equipment and they are never disconnected. Um, and that has always been the case. But I would encourage people to absolutely talk to your supplier. It's a very easy process um, if you believe you fall within that, that category of vulnerable customer. Do you know or do you believe that there are a lot of people who should be availing of that facility, who should be registering as vulnerable? Yeah, I think what, what we've heard from um, the, the, the NGOs that, that we would uh, engage with on a regular basis, our, our customer stakeholder group, have, have indicated that for some reason, and, and we're not sure if it's it's a lack of knowledge around it and we're certainly promoting it, or it's that some people just don't identify with being vulnerable. Um, it, it, it's a tricky, um, I suppose, one to, to get to the bottom of it, but we will certainly be prom- promoting reg- registering with that uh, registered this winter so there'll be a campaign around that for customers And the other moratorium you mentioned this is for everybody else that they won't be cut off by either their gas or electricity supplier from the 1st of December until the end of February Last year that was extended to the end of March. Will it be again this year? 
Sorry, nice. So it's it's until the end of um, January um, 2024, just oh. to be clear. And and yes, it was longer yet last year. We, we provided an extension to that. But what we found is that... Sorry, um, just, sorry just, just to be very clear, from the first, yeah. from the beginning of December until the end of January next year. Yes. That, yes that's, that's two correct. months. Yes. Last year it was four months, yes? Yes. And uh, I suppose, look, in normal circumstances, the moratorium is usually uh, a number of weeks. Uh, we, we provided a longer moratorium last year, given the prices, uh, energy prices and where they were going. But what we find from data from suppliers is that although the moratorium provides a level of comfort, uh, it, it, it's, it's a short-term level of comfort. And what happens is customers, we know, drop out of repayment plans when there's a longer moratorium and they stopped engaging with their supplier. Um, a moratorium doesn't negate the debt. The debt is still there on the customer's account. Uh, and what we see is that actually compounds the problem for them. And when they stop engaging with their supplier, it means then they're at higher risk of disconnection when the moratorium is lifted. So we would encourage all customers, don't let it get to that situation. Engage early. The suppliers know that the customers are, are having difficulty and um, they will be more than happy to put customers on payment plans. We've put an extra measure in there that customers are to be offered at a minimum 24 months for a, a repayment plan. So the, the moratorium for the winter months, it is one measure, but again, we don't want to put customers in a worse position you, um, than they would, would, would otherwise be. Do you know how many customers in arrears avoided disconnection last year? So what we see is that when we before the moratorium, before the extended moratorium, there were around 10 to 15 percent of people would drop out of a repayment plan. Um, but at the end of the moratorium or during that period, I should say, we it had risen to 24 percent. So, you know, that that indicates that people are for one reason or another disengaging. And, and it seems to be linked to that extended period for the moratorium. Karen Trant from the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities on the News at One today. With all the talk about protecting the environment, one Waterford teacher has taken it upon himself to educate students on sustainability. Here's Patrick Kerwin on the Nine O'Clock Show. Good morning, Brendan. I'm very good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Delighted. So, uh, just so people know, you're a science teacher in Arts School Namara in Tremor County, Waterford, correct? Yes, that's correct. And you're an impressive guy. I'm reading here. So tell me what you're doing. So we're trying to, to teach our students about sustainability. And mm-hmm. we look at it through the lens of like, what, well, what is, what is, what's happening with the climate? What's happening with nature? Why is global citizenship important? And I think that... Sustainability is such an abstract concept for most adults as well as students. So we're trying to make that a bit more tangible. And I think, you know, some people who are involved in, in this kind of are thinking or working in the space, it's seen sometimes as a personal interest or a hobby, as opposed to, you know, we're trying to pave the way for a better future to avoid <laughs> the collapse of our human civilization. I, I think you're onto and something there. Do you think we're somewhere between accepting responsibility and, or, and it being a hobby? Uh, t- just tell me, for somebody who may never have heard the phrase global citizenship, what does that mean? Well, it means about that we're, we're thinking about the actions that we're taking and how that actually affects other people around the world. 
So, you know, in Ireland, we see some climate impacts, but in, in other countries, they're really suffering quite severe climate impacts. So in the classroom, we might show the students a video of some people in Ethiopia who are getting support with food because they're starving. And I think the, sometimes the assumption that we make is this has always been their way of life. They've always been starving. But actually, they could grow their own food just like us. But because of climate change over decades that they've been experiencing, they have droughts or, or flash floods, and that has actually stopped them from being able to actually grow their own food and support themselves. And if you look, and actually the, the contributions that countries have made all around the world to um, greenhouse gas emissions and global warming, um, if you looked at it on a graph, you'd see a very, very big box for Europe. And Ireland is in Europe, and actually we've got the highest, one of the highest kind of carbon emissions per person of all European countries. Wow. But if you look at the, the box for, for Africa, it's tiny. And if you, look, if you look for Ethiopia, you can't even see the word because their contributions are so small. And it's quite interesting because the students completely and utterly understand what fairness is all about. They talk to us about it all the time. This teacher isn't fair, that teacher isn't fair. Yeah. And so I ask them the question, is this fair? Wonderful. That they are suffering because of the actions that we are taking uh, historically in, in the global north. Patrick, take me back into the classroom. You, you came back from working in the UK in London in 2020 to teach in Ardsgunamara in Tremor. And how did, what kind of students did you find? Were they aware of sustainability and climate change? Were they informed? Were they enthusiastic? So I would say that um, this is, when you mention climate, people are jaded straight away. Do you think so? The psychology of it is, is quite interesting, you know. And um, they have been taught in some, you know, about sustainability or climate change, but the message isn't landing with them because wow. it hasn't landed with the teachers who are, you know, members of the public, just like the, the adults are, the rest of the adults in our community. So when I spoke to them about, for example, a six-year class, I was talking to them about climate change, and, you know, the predictions for what would happen in the future, when they realized the, the magnitude mm -hmm. and scale of this emergency and the urgency at which we need to take action, one of the students said to me, thank you for telling me. Oh, wow. Nobody told me that this would actually happen in, in my lifetime. That's amazing. So what are you, tell me, how are you encouraging leadership in the classroom? So we have a, a wonderful program called an Environmental Leadership Development Program. And it's got kind of two elements to it. There's an outdoor classroom element where we kind of engage students with nature, but we also help them to connect the dots between climate change, biodiversity, food security, and sustainability and their own lives. And then the other part of the program is where a TY student will adopt or mentor a tutor group for the year and will take four actions with them across the year and explain why those, important, uh, those actions are important. And essentially, we invest a huge amount of time into a small group of TY students who actually lead this program. And it's so, it's, it's the good stuff in life, you know, when you see it, because they are down in the outdoor classroom and they are actually teaching um, the, the students themselves and taking full responsibility for that lesson. So you might, like, you bring down a class of students um, I'm, they'll bring down a uh, group of students to the classroom mm -hmm. and they will do a workshop with them for an hour. 
Wow. And part of that workshop could be, it could be sowing seeds, it could be making wreaths, it could be um, making bird boxes, but they'll also have discussion activities within that. And what the students are saying is that they are, like, I mean, you can see it. They're growing in confidence. They're taking responsibility. They've got a real kind of leadership opportunity. And the students who are coming down are saying they learn better from their peers than, than their learning from the teachers, you know, because we know the value of kind of peer-to-peer education. Patrick Kerwin chatting to Brendan Courtney on The Nine O'Clock Show. Comedian Julie J isn't long off the stage in Liberty Hall, but before the gig, she took the time out to chat to Ray Darcy. I am. I'm in Liberty Hall tonight yes. doing my show. Oops, this is toxic. So you you might be able to tell me what is Bono feeling now because he, he's going on stage. You know the big deal in, in Look, Vegas. It's, it's not the first time I've been compared to Bono. I'm not going to lie. I am the voice of a generation. Thank God somebody said it. Um, yeah. No. You know you would be a bit nervous because it's my first gig back as well since having the baby. Yes. Congrats. Congratulations, little Thanks JJ. Thanks so much, little what, JJ. What age is he? He is officially six weeks old today. So happy, I had him six weeks Happy six ago. weeks, yes. Uh, what are people saying to you about being back to work? It's a bit of a mixed bag. I'm not going to lie. A lot of people asking, where are the children? And you're like, they're with their father. Yes. P.S. It's not babysitting when they're your kids. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of questions about the kids. And, you know, obviously I'm breastfeeding as well. So a lot of people very concerned about my pumping situation. Yes, yes. Are you a good touch. pumper? I am. Um, I got to pump it up. I said, I, I'll tell you that much. So I really pumped for Ireland now today. Yes. So fret not. The child has fed. So, yeah, no, people, I mean, generally people are really encouraging and, you know, they kind of say fair play to you. It could be mad now doing the show tonight, but I I really can't wait. Like, I think it's going to be great. And I love the show. And when was the last time you did the show? The last time I did the show was in Ballybunion in July. So not too long ago. The red latex was working hard that day. I tell you that much because I was very pregnant at that stage. So, yeah, the red latex was, we were down to one button. Doing stand-up pregnant? Oh, do you know, I kind of loved it because it was just, I mean, it, it was it was great in a way because it provided for so much new content. And, you know, you really could have a bit of crack with it. And even aside from, obviously, with the audience, I had a lot of crack with the audience um, in terms of being pregnant, but also even with the other comedians in the green room, I really enjoyed making them nervous, you know, saying things like, it could be any minute now. And, oh, I don't know. Was, I think I think that seat could be a bit wet. Like this kind of stuff really, really, you know, that kind of added to my enjoyment of the craft. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I loved it. And I really liked being pregnant, to be honest. You know, Second. Second pregnancy. Second, yeah, yeah. second well, baba. That's yeah. an assumption yeah. on my part. But yeah, 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 no, so second pregnancy, yeah, yeah, yeah. second baba. Yeah, yeah. And and Ted is what age? Ted is the big zero three. Right. Yeah, so... Any jealousy there? No, do you know, he's been great. I was a bit worried because he's a real mammy's boy. Like, mm. we're very close. But he, he has been great, loves JJ. That being said, now he has started to ask for some of JJ's milk. And I'm like, listen, mister, <laughs> that ship has sailed. <laughs> You bit me. You know what they say? Bite me once, shame on you. Bite me twice, shame on me. So sorry, Ted, that ship is it. But he's been great and he's been all about him. I think he likes having the company at home because mm. he was getting so a bit bored So you haven't arrived into the kitchen with him holding JJ over the bin or anything like that. You know, those no, horror stories. I mean, here. no, but no. I wouldn't necessarily take my eyes off him for ah, too yes. long either. Yeah, but yeah, in that, yeah. 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 So, so you're in a house full of men now. Yes. JJ, Ted and Fred. 
lads, lads, lads. I know, yeah. aren't we gassed with the names? And I didn't even think, somebody said to me, they were like, oh, if yourself and Fred ever split up, would you call him JJJ? Which I hadn't thought about oh, at all. yes, JJJ. The treble J would be a bit over the top. Yes, but it look, would. we've committed to JJ now. But you're, you're, you have no plans to split up with oh, Fred. Oh, no. <laughs> Fred, if you're listening, I love you. Because <laughs> you moved down to Dingle, which is a... Like, you can't yeah. get much further away from Dublin, really, I can you? I know. Well, you see, like a lot of people, we went down there, Ray, it was January 2020. We planned to come back to Dublin in March 2020. Then there was just this minor incident which occurred. Don't know yeah. if you heard about it. And yeah, like we're still there. However many, I mean, how long ago was that? Four years come this spring? Yeah. And it is, it's It's just, it's one of those things. We do love West Kerry. It is tricky with gigs and stuff. It is very far. Yes. Um, but it's hard to believe we're still there. I suppose we just kind of had the first baby, then we had the second baby. And I guess life is what happens when you're busy making plans. There's but a bit of like that. the song goes, it puts a spell on you. Does it, Dingle? A oh, bit? it does. It is a very, very special place. It is. I mean, I always say that, that I know, practically speaking, virtually every gig you're going to do is going to be an overnight gig. So yes. it is tricky, especially with kids, mm. you know yourself, with childcare. Mm. But... There's nowhere like Dingle. Yeah, you know, no, it, it is, yeah, it's magical. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you you and Fred are comedians. Um, that's not that common, is it? In terms of comedians getting together? Yeah. Well, it might be more common than you'd think. Right. I, there, there aren't too many official comedy couples, but I'd say there'd be a lot of shifting going on. <laughs> a lot of shifting. Yeah. You know right. yourself, you'd be shifting them it's for probably, It's probably not a good time to be talking about shifting within the comedy world, is it? No, <laughs> probably not. But I, I don't know. I mean, there probably are too shifting. many... Consensual exactly, shifting. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Happy yes. shifting. Happy shifting. Um, you know, there probably aren't too many comedy couples. We are a bit unusual, I would say. Yeah. I don't know, is there not? Yeah, I'm trying to think of other comedy couples. But it's nice because ultimately, I suppose, we're both so into comedy. That was the common denominator we had. It's about the only thing we have in common, I would think, is is our mutual love of comedy. Um, because <laughs> mu- honestly, I'm not lying. Like music wise, Fred is a devil. He'd be playing Mondays, July on Christmas Eve. Right. Like he drives me mad with the music. He's a musician he though. He is. He's a, did he... Study music. He did study music. Yeah. yeah, he did study music, and he's a wonderful music musician. Yeah. I have to say, like we don't have a mortgage, but we do have a lot of melodicas. Um, <laughs> so look, that was comedian Julie J on the Ray Darcy show. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.